Howdy folks, welcome to Sketchy Conversations with John and Mills on the 4th. On today's episode, we're chatting with Law. Told you I'd bring him back. In this episode, we're chatting about him making history at the bitter end, how he got the slot singing backup for Amy Winehouse, and his upcoming projects. So, how did the legacy album by a band called Sam get started? Um, it's really was kind of like, I guess you could say four years in the making. Because, you know, I mean, when my grandfather got sick, you know, I think it was a reality that none of the band members wanted to face, and especially me and my mother, because that's, you know, that's, that's, she, you know, she's the daughter and I'm the grandson, so it's even more worse for us. And the crazy thing was just that, you know, we kept the, the party going because, you know, there would be some nights where he didn't feel like coming to do the show because he was just really too weak. And, um, you know, I, I would I would lead the band like I have always have. I would always take over and just do what we need to do. There's enough talent in here to keep this thing going in between everything else. So, you know, of course, he passed away. And then um, we just kept, you know, building more of a reputation, which we already had when he was there. Because, like I said, even during the show, me and Gary Sellers, we would um, we would take turns. You know, of course, I'm doing the majority of, of the of the leads, but, you know, Gary sings as well. And so does Danny King. So I would let them get a couple of songs in there and things like that. And then we just would keep the, the, the same level of. Of, of what we represent as a band called Sam Alive. And then, of course, mom would come ever so often and join us on stage because she has a permanent place. So it just really began the thing where it's kind of like an unconscious decision that we said we're going to keep this thing going. However, I realized that, you know, now that Sam is gone, we've never been able to capture the rawness of our sound on stage because, you know, on stage we have some very good sonics and, you know, you know, all, all all guys are great musicians. So it's just like, you know what? We never really chance to conquer that. We should do an album and do some of my grandfather's songs over. So it was always spoken about, but we didn't start taking the steps to that until um, those those from the, the top of those four years going into it. And then I think like in the third year is when we were able to get the bulk of everything and then just complete it with different ideas and stuff like that. So, So what are you playing on there? Say it again. So, what are you are you doing? Vocals, playing it, playing guitar. Yeah. What are you on? Mm -hmm. I'm 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 singing most of the background vocals. I'm playing rhythm and lead guitar. You know, the, the alternating part between me and Gary is that you know, uh, you know, blues with a more pop influence, but then I add the funk and the blues part of it to it as well. So it's like the combination of us uh, as guitar players, and then you know, of course, Mario's steady hand on drums and. Danny King produced produced the album, so it was like that. Um, things fall into place, and Gary Grob on bass, and my mom, um, the legendary Maxine Brown is on the album, doing the duet with my mother. So, um, and my aunt Angela's on there as well. So, yeah. Speaking of albums and everything, one of my favorite albums by you actually is the Planet Twelve live sessions. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I love that album too, man. So how'd that come about? And is there a volume two in the works? Oh, absolutely. Like we're constantly, um, I, you know, believe it or not, I found a lot of live stuff that we had did between the years of 2012 going into now. And I would just always, you know, I'm, I'm very particular about recording. So I like to think the reason why you probably like the Plan 12 live sessions so much is because I made sure that, um, 
all the live cuts, whether they were live in the studio or, or live on stage, I wanted to make sure that they were good quality recordings. You know, I don't believe in sucky duck live recordings. And there's a few albums that have that reputation where it's like the live quality sucks. And it's funny because a major label would be behind it. And it's like, this, this shit sucks. <laughs> so I want to make sure that um, I had all the nooks and crannies in terms of, of, of making of making that happen. So um, there's definitely going to be a part two because we're doing some more recording, actually. We have um, some some shows that we're planning now for um, late December or, or like right in the top of December, and especially going into um, January or February. So there's def- we already got, the, already got the album cover for it. So... <laughs> Um, so it's definitely going to be a, a two in the work. So I'm just being very strategic like I've always been because actually when I put the Plan 12 live sessions out, um, that was just really to keep um, the fans, you know, kind of waiting, you know, in, in a good way. So like they, could, they can work while they wait and listen to some great joints while um, while, while they wait. So this is a whole thing to, to do new material and stuff like that. So. Um, I just included the best of the live stuff that we had done. I even doing a rehearsal in there for a bonus, just to show, you know, just to show people how how I work out shit with my band. So, um, yeah. Nice. So, I've been asking a lot of people this, and I just love hearing different perspectives and answers. What do you think the future of live performance is? Um, good question. Um, well, for what we're seeing now in this current climate, I think. Um, there's definitely going to be more precautions taken uh, for obvious reasons because, you know, even though we're kind of slowly somewhat moving out of the pandemic, it's still pretty much in effect as we witnessed already. So it's almost like I think moving forward is going to get to a point where it's going to be a balance of both that part of the, the live stream aspect or more artists don't even want to take that risk to to go on the tour but then again nothing beats that part of it because the revenue money part of it is what the industry consists on in terms of bringing in those billions of dollars and money to to fund other things in music so um i don't think it's going to totally stop and and it it will get back to normal it just won't be as normal it'll just be the um you know the whole the whole thing of of that so it's just like you know i can see that because you know what? It's kind of funny because I think about a lot of, all right, for a lot of younger bands and everything, right? I remember it was Billy Corgan. It was, he made a really good point about younger bands. Instead of focusing on trying to play that one bar down the street, you have all the stuff in your hands based, hands now. So just put, the, put it up online and put it up online instead, you know? And because I was thinking about a lot of artists that do like live streaming stuff, you know, you include it too. You know, I really feel like it kind of connects that fan base that creates that emotional investment. You know, so I kind of see that being like a feature as well. You know, I wouldn't be surprised, you know. You know, so, all right. So what was the inspiration for Pandemic Paradox Paradise? Um, Pretty much this grown-ass man turning into a little kid looking outside the window as soon as everybody else, like myself, got the message that COVID-19 was very real. <laughs> so... I felt like a little kid looking out the window and just watching as our world began to change almost instantly. You know, people are running rampant, you know, for, for toilet paper and napkins and rubbing alcohol. So, you know, because remember, let's keep it all the way honest. I don't think, especially in New York, I don't think that anybody really believed 
that it was real until these cases really came back valid, to be honest. I think, and, and mind you, we had every right to believe that because, you know, we had the Ebola virus and the West Nile virus. So it was like, eh, whatever, whatever, virus, virus, whatever. And I think this one was definitely a, a serious wake-up call because the bottom line is that you're realizing certain things of that magnitude in in what COVID represents. So to go through all of that and not see that this can very well be something that can affect who we are it just became a whole new thing for all of us. So, like I said, I'm, I'm a grown-ass man, but I looked outside my window like a little kid, like, wow, man, they shut, they're damn near shutting almost everything down except for the stores. And to see a lot of the businesses locally and even the bigger guys kind of go under for a second, it was just weird. It was weird, you know, because most of us were trapped in our homes now. I mean, we could go out on our course, you know, where I live at, it's, it's big. Long Island is the definition of quarantine. So it's almost like, okay, well, I'm already, and I've already been a quarantine kind of person anyway. So it didn't really affect me that much, but the science with everything affected me. And, you know, I didn't feel compelled to really write anything in a song form at that time. I was just gathering my thoughts because, you know, on Facebook, I've always been very vocal about um, the environment, politics, socialism, you know, all, all the things that, that come along with, with being were being human and you know i think it was probably going into the last couple of months where i just seen so much of the bullshit lies being told more corruption more things coming out the woodworks you know presidents not denouncing white supremacy <laughs> oh you know so the thing with me is that it got to a point where up until that month, now, of course, this happened before he didn't, you know, he, he didn't denounce it. So it's just more so like right around, I'm going to say probably August. Between that and, of course, the greatest R&B album of all time, um, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album. I, I just, you know, and the reason why I pinpoint that record more than anything else is because, you know, that album is still relevant if you look at the times we're living in now. It's still relevant. It's still some of the same stuff is still going on, if not all of it. So it's almost like, you know what, Law? You put out a lot of cool music that eased the spirit. People have fun to my music. People like to rock out. I talk about love, heartache, pain, or just straight spitting versus just having fun and being a jokester and just being wild and creative. But you, outside of the songs like Stepdad and um, I Don't Want to Be an American Idol, you you know and those, and those are political statements too if you look at it those are political statements too because stepdad of course is about my um, experiences with my stepfather and that's political and social at the same time i don't want to be american idol is musical politics because if because people don't know the truth behind it so it's almost like i've always dip dab and said what i need to say in terms of that but i've never spoken musically in direct form to what we're seeing right now so between marvin's album my thoughts and just looking at everything, I just said, you know what? I'm going to put out another EP. I'm going to put out two EPs. So I'm going to do Mega Dope Maniac for my birthday on October 23rd. And I don't have a date for, I don't have a November date for um, Pandemic Paradox, but it's definitely coming out in November. I think I'm going to know in the next couple of weeks or so. But pretty much the, um, the, the project is 99.5% is finished. We're just tightening up some things now and trying to decide that. But, um, but yeah, it's called Humanity 101 pandemic paradox paradise with a question mark 
One I've been trying to figure out this, the status of for a while since about 2018 was Psychotic Chameleon. Psychotic Chameleon will be coming out in January. About time. Wait for that. I've already, I know, I know everybody, <laughs> that's becoming like my Dr. Dre detox moment. Everybody thought I wasn't going to come out with it. <laughs> no, no. Because you know why? Because originally, I mean, you probably know this because you've been following me for, for a long time. Um, remember, I, I did leak a few songs though. The song, the, those songs are still going to be on there. I did, I did leak a few songs. Um, like quarter, quarter is part of um psychotic community, and quarter's been around for a minute. We even do it in shows as well. Um, another one I didn't leak, but um, one that I know you're going to like for sure. Um, called Saturday Night Religion. That's my tribute to Sheik and now Rogers. So you already get the mental part of where I'm going with that. Um. Backyard Love Affair, Last Train Anywhere. These are some of the working titles that I have now. These are songs that um, are either 95% recorded or I have to finish up. Um, Intergalactic Bedroom is another one. Um, this is going to be a double album. I'm pretty sure you know that, right? It's going to be um, 25, 26 songs on, on this particular record. Because I figured between, um, you know, well, I'm, I'm making up for lost time, man. Because, you know, in between the years, you know, they were, I was on a lot of projects, as you know. The Dynama Squad album, then the Jelly Bean stuff, and and everybody had been waiting for new material outside of the stuff that I had leaked already. But you know, people only can pay attention when it's presented in the form of a new release. So I said, okay, well, let me gather up these, this new shit that I'm writing, and then all the other stuff that I already had in the can. So I'm just like, hmm, well, they never heard this song. That's why I've noticed when I re-released um, Plant Soul Syndrome. I put some other joints on there that didn't make the final cut of Plants Soul Syndrome because there were a lot of tracks being done during that period. Like I told you, I work very fast in the studio because I work alone for the most part. You know what I mean? I play all the, I play all the instruments. I do all the production parts. I, I, I play all the MPCs and Akai's and all that kind of stuff and, a, and ASRs and whatnot. So anytime that a session was over in terms of me finishing what I came to do originally, I would have an hour or two hours left over and I would just sit there. I would take, depending on which day it was, I would just sit there and just come up with a whole bunch of tracks. I would just sit there and create a whole bunch of music. So I, I never, I don't believe in wasting time in the studio. Like I, I literally, like if something's in front of me, I'm going to do it. That's a quick melody. Even if I don't finish it all before the time runs out, I'm going to make sure it's locked down. So with Psychotic Chameleon, it pretty much was that because I thought I was ready because I had a whole bunch of other songs I was ready to release and put out. And then, you know, life happens. You know how that goes because I'm, I'm a father and not a family. So my thing is that, um, you know, in between that and then getting situated with, with certain aspects of that, it was far through between times that I had to do shows. I'm in the studio, but then I can't get that together because I want it to be right. It's the same care that go, that went into to Plant Soul Syndrome is the same care that's going to go into the two EPs and Psychotic Chameleon. But, um... It's definitely happening. The album cover is still the same because I did notice I hashtagged it to make sure since where you know, God forbid, if anybody attempts to try to steal my concept, they already know who came up with it first. So that's why I'm, I'm locking everything down now in terms of um, making sure that we have a real release date for it. Plus, I'm still recording songs for it. So, so far we have, um, I'm going to say about 17 songs so far, but then the other ones that haven't made the final cut. So there's a lot of remixing, a lot of things that I want to do to avoid um, like a lot of the hip hop stuff on there, I'm avoiding some of the sample clearances and um, not having to go through that because there's nothing wrong with doing original. So I put those on mixtapes and I'm working on two mixtapes as well. So, um, but yeah, Psychotic Chameleon is definitely happening, bro, without question. I, I'm, I'm not living that down. That's that's going to be the, it's basically going to be, um, 
a plantar, the plantar syndrome times 100, basically. So I'm basically spazzing out like I always do, but this time we're going to add some new flavors to the mix in addition to the styles that I'm known for. So it's, it's going to be a mob, though, I promise you. It's going to be crazy. Nice. All right. Something, I was speaking on live performances. I want to make sure I get this question right because I didn't write this one, but it kind of dawned on me. All right. You ever notice there's certain artists that are better that's not better on the album than perform live or vice versa. What do you think? Why do you think that is? Um, well, <laughs> there could be a couple of reasons for that. But, um, the one thing I'm going to say is probably because, especially with the last 20, no, actually let's say 30 or 40 years because of the expansion and the advancement of technology, which is basically in the studio, you can make anybody sounds good. You know what I mean? So anybody who's not that good of a singer now can become the best singer in the world. But, you know, they forgot one thing. If you haven't been through the ranks like me and you have, if you haven't proven yourself on stage or if you haven't been through the ringer, um, it's going to show. And it's going to have to, you know, most singers rely on that. And then you have some singers who are just that damn good that sound the way they do live, the way they do on record. Like one of my favorites is Neo. Neo, I did two shows with Neo. Neo sounds like the damn record. I loved every minute of it. I'm like, yes, he sounds like the record. So you could tell there's a lot of clarity and thought. I mean, he's a songwriter, so that makes a lot of sense. There's certain words that you want to make sure you're phrasing, you know, certain things you put into to, to the song that makes it ring, you know, and even the way he pronounces certain words and certain ad-libs that he does, you know, his recordings I always look forward to. Anytime he puts out a record, and even if it doesn't go platinum, I look forward to, to what he's writing and how he sings because when I got a chance to do the two shows with him and hang out with him for a minute and then he performed Champagne Life and um, he even did Give Me Everything Tonight. Pitbull wasn't even there. He did that song twice because the client wanted to hear it again. And he did the song twice and he had the same range. I wanna love you. Like he, I'm like, wow. And it wasn't STEM because you gotta remember, we all had the same engineer. So there were no stems and none of that. I mean, of course, he, he was doing the, he was doing a track day, so they had the the background vocals and certain things on there. But um, yep. So that that's so I would say pretty much that's it, it's a, it's it's like a it's like a two way street. It's a two way street. It's really um, some singers can sing live and sound better in the studio, and some singers do sing better um in the studio than they do live. So I mean, you know. All I know is that I'm not that guy. <laughs> that, that's 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 the main difference. Like I, I put too much hard work from the time I was seven to make sure that my vocals match the intensity on stage as much as it does in the studio. So I'm very grateful to my fans when they let me know and they hear certain things and they come to the shows and they they you know they, they let me be known. It's all about the fans. Like they they're gonna tell you. You can't fool the fans. Like they're gonna tell you. They know when somebody don't sound good or somebody's struggling or they really don't have the voice like that. And I'm not going to get into any names because there's a whole lot of names I can name off who I know for a fact don't either don't sing live on stage or or pretty much is lukewarm when it comes to stage. But in the studio, like I said, anybody can sound good in the studio. You know that. So. Oh, yeah. All right. I hate to put you in a box because that kind of defeats the whole Planet, planet 12 mission but is it true that you're the first hip-hop bass or hip-hop adjacent artist to play bitter in yes i am without question i mean and and, 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 I, and honestly that's not boxing me in the thing is that um 
the reason why that's a proud accomplishment for me is because you got to remember, bro, this is the legendary bitter end we're talking about. Bruce Springsteen, Donnie Hathaway, Curtis Mayfield, the Ozzy Brothers, they recorded live albums there. And the thing is that for the most part, until I came along, the Bitter Inn was pretty much your standard folky place like Arlo Guthrie, you know, like um, a lot of the folk singers and um, Richie Havens, like all those guys played the Bitter Inn because it was mostly for acoustic folk or if you're doing the full band thing, it was either soul, R&B or rock and roll. That was pretty much it. So, of course, fast forward some 40-something, 50 years later, and, you know, here I come. You know, I finally make the decision to put a band together and start capitalizing off of my current fame with P-Funk at that time. And then, you know, I said, I need, I need a band now to start doing my own thing because I know that tours are not going to always last forever. So I need to have something going on here for my own brand to, 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 make, to make this jump off the way that it should jump off. So, um... It's just really interesting how, you know, Pete Fogel, very instrumental, the guy who um who 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 makes it be apparent to to that of, of everything else, you know, in in terms of um believing in me because he saw me when I was with my aunt's band um, uh, uh, Eternity, you know what I mean? So basically, he knew me since I was 16. So I had been shopping my package there at the bitter end for like the last five months, and nobody would get back to me. And as the story goes from what Pete told me, you know, you know, he had just became the booking agent there. And he's like, he said, so who, who do we got, man? Who got the book? He said, oh, I mean, we got a few people. This is this one guy named Law who keeps singing. And then he said, hold up. The only Law I know is this kid from Brooklyn who can sing, rap, dance, and play all these instruments. And I, I didn't see him with his arms back. He said, is this this guy? And he had a picture. He's like, yep, that's him. He said, no, no, you don't understand. Law is not average. Yeah, because you know we don't do hip-hop, Pete. That was what was told. They didn't, they didn't do hip-hop at all, on no level. So he's like, no, 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 y'all don't understand. This is not your average hip-hop. Law is not, you, you see the look, you'll probably think that right away. But listen to when I tell you. I've known Law since he was 16, 17 years old, beasting with his aunt. That dude is the real deal. I'm telling you, book him. It's going to change some things. So Pete Fogel did it. The rest of the guys approved of it. And I basically cracked the door open because up until COVID hit, most of the acts that have come through, um, the contemporary acts that have been able to play there is really because of me. Like a lot of other groups like Granola Funk Express and um, a couple of other groups I can't think of on the top of my head. Actually, my cousin Crown Royal played there. And I can I, I can truthfully say that had I wouldn't have played there for the last six years, hip hop again wouldn't have been accepted. And, you know, my, my cousin has a, has a um, live band like I do. So... The whole hip-hop live band thing I brought to the bitter end. You know what I mean? I I'm proud to say that. That's definitely probably one of my most proudest accomplishments of that I opened the door for the hybrid at, at a legendary club that's known for rock, funk, and, and all things that aren't hip-hop. And I think once they saw, and I think part of the key was once they saw that it was a plethora of stuff, that's when they started nodding their head and they agreed like, oh, wow, this is okay. This is different. Okay. Right, we see what you're talking about now, Pete. So, yeah, man. So I, I'm, I'm happy about that. You know, that brings up something I was watching with an interview with, I think it was Lord Jamar, eh. but he made a good point. Wait, uh, it was either Lord Jamar or Joe Bunnan. Either was a black guy to rap with a beard. That's all I remember. Um, gotcha. Point being was, Cause it was a thing regarding he's it was with Little Nas X and everything, and dude kind of like bends genres, you know. 
okay, apples and oranges over here, but the fact is, mm-hmm. you know, you guys are you don't get you guys don't get boxed in, right? Do you yeah. feel it's a little bit harder for black people or black artists to be, you know, do they need to get questioned more than than their you know white counterparts when they're trying to bend genres? Do you think? Well, I mean, shit. Ask 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 my big sis Dion Farris. <laughs> they, you know, she was ahead of her time, the same way Janelle Monae was, the same way a lot of other people who we can sit here and name. I just think that because of the fact that we as a people got brainwashed early because the record label spoiled us. So in a lot of different ways, that will be in addition to how things are perceived. And a lot of times because there was such a cushion when it came to things like Motown and Stax and James Brown had his own sound altogether. That was the three R&B sounds of the 60s, basically. Motown, Stax, and James Brown, pretty much. That birthed the whole movement on every level and the advancement of black artistry. And we crossed over to the pop without being crossed over ourselves. But the thing is that we fell into this particular thing as to where that whatever we owned and whatever we created, we had to still be, um, quote unquote, a slave to it. And not, 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 for, lack, for lack of a better phrase, like be a slave to how it's supposed to look, how it's supposed to act. And then you have people who are just that forward thinking. Because perfect example, Patti LaBelle says in her book that it was the girl, the manager, Vicky. She's the reason why LaBelle had that space age look when they re, when they revamped themselves. Because people forget that LaBelle was already out there back in the 60s. It was Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. Nona Hendrix, Sarah Dash, and Sidney Bird song before she went to the Supremes. And um, remember, they were doing the whole doo-wop thing like all the other girls, you know, the long dresses. You know how it is. Like, they had the whole 60s look. But as the 70s came along, they began transforming. Vicky was like, listen... If y'all girls are going to hit big in this current climate, y'all have to change your image. And Patti LaBelle said that she'd be the first to admit that she didn't really think that dressing in that weird fashion would be a good idea. Norna was already with it because Norna, to be honest, as everybody knows, Norna Hendrix was always like the, the wild radical one in LaBelle. Even today, if you look at her now, that woman is in her, what, 70s? She still can wear these assless chaps and look sexy as hell and still be fierce in, in her look and bold and, and like she, she was ahead of her time but she's not the only one like that Betty Davis was like that too like they were pushing the envelope for what black artistry was and say look I don't have to wear bell bottoms and platforms to be hip but that was the thing I think and that's a social thing too because I think with every with every era when it comes to black people especially the ones that grow up in the hood we, we have this thing where we want to point the finger at oh, that's not hip enough, or you don't look cool enough. And we didn't allow people to be them. When the 80s came along, it changed a little bit, but they were still being met with resistance, especially in hip-hop. Because you couldn't be one or the other in terms of how you dress. If you didn't have the typical gear, you didn't fit the standards. So that's why you have to thank God for groups like, um, actually, the Furious Five, because the Furious Five were dressing like P-Funk almost, and then when Run DMC kind of said, okay, we ain't, we ain't doing the, the spike leathers and all that kind of shit. We're doing the Adidas suit, sneakers, the whole bit, which became the hip-hop uniform. But then when De La Soul and Tropical Quest came out, it was like, look, we like sneakers and all that shit too, but we got to separate ourselves. And then we get caught up in this mix, and especially when it comes to hip-hop, because I'm going to be honest, in hip-hop, 
we don't know. When I say we, I don't mean us. In hip hop, we don't know what the fuck we want. We can't make up our mind. One minute, oh, he's a sellout. And then, you know, like I said um, before, you know, Hammer was criticized to the death for the way he dressed, for the fact that he was doing a different kind of hip hop thing, you know, with, with the dancing and the, and the James Brown stuff and, and putting all these different genres in the mix and making it dance for people to have a party to. And we call him a sellout because he crossed over, sold all these records and he's doing stuff for Pepsi and, and branding, branding before it became branding before that's what we call it. Nowadays, we call it branding now, but before he was met with resistance and I felt like hammer, I'm a huge hammer fan. So for me, I felt like he, he, he got crucified, man. Like it was almost like they try to run him through the mud for doing what we all doing now. And what we have to do is mandated. If you don't have something else besides music going on, chances are, unless you're anything like me, if, you, if you're not producing and writing and, doing choreography and mentoring and all that kind of stuff, you know, you're screwed pretty much. That's, that's really what it is. So um, I, I just would say it, it's always been that way, especially with hip hop. Like we don't know what the hell we want. We can't, we can't be decisive enough times to tell somebody what isn't acceptable or what you can't do. And, you know, whereas with rock, it was always accepted, but rock had an undertone because black artists weren't perceived that way. And if you were too, you know, Funkadelic had the greatest dilemma. They were too ghetto for the white audiences, but too psychedelic for the black audiences. And that's how they created their lane. But that's, but I mean, but it worked for them though. See, before it didn't, in the beginning, it didn't work for them because you don't realize what's happening. But after a while you realize you're building a following here. Hmm, this is different. You're building a following because now it's starting to make sense. You have all these different audiences coming your way. And that's the reason why, if you notice, for the last 20, 30 years, you know, Parliament Funkadelic, pack them in still. Pack them in. Stadiums, you know, small clubs, you know, whatever. Because that's what you see. You see the combination of all of those fans from the 60s, the 70s, to the 80s, to the 90s that were still rocking with P-Funk up until that whole point. So um, it's really getting where you fit in. But I don't think anybody should be categorize or, or label with everything or fighting towards that if you want to be an artist. And I feel like, listen, whatever you choose to do, just be authentic. You know, if you just be authentic, people, you, you'll have your fan base. That's what I did. I just would stay true to who I was and and kind of attracted the people I was supposed to attract. You know, I, I think it makes a lot of sense in that, you know, and when most rappers try to put it down on, my thing is just know the history. That's always been the thing with me. Like, just know the history. I don't care. Honestly, I don't care what you do. Just as long as you know what the history of the shit is. If you know what the history of it is and you represent, you can always forever represent the culture. So, yeah. You know, that's a good point, too, because I was thinking about, because I'm noticing a generational war a little bit, you know, from, you know, I hate to use the terms like, like the younger kids, you know, they like their stuff and everything. And they're a bit more on the boisterous side. Like they're really blunt about it. Right. Is mm -hmm. what I'm noticing too. And this, I mean, I've seen a couple of like, you know, like a couple of pages where they do kind of take the piss out of like, you know, I'm not saying like the guys that know their history, but you know, the guys that halfway remember stuff and they don't remember it that way. Mm -hmm. So the mice post like a clip, you know, and I, and I admit it. It's like, here's the thing about me. Okay. That's another good question too. What's mm -hmm. the difference between Respectfully disagreeing, taking the piss respectfully, and just being an out disrespectful savage. What's the difference? Um, well, the difference is, um, 
a disrespectful savage is just doesn't give a fuck and they don't want to acknowledge that they they got their head up their ass so that's a huge difference right there um respectfully um disagreeing or or not really acknowledging um that's that's kind of like a, a two-sided double-edged sword too because it's almost like you have to look at the age of the person you have to also look at if that person is willing to receive the information like i, I really you know I, we, talk, we talk about this often a lot of times because here's my thing because you know people always i don't like the new current stuff and i've always made it clear people always ask me what do you feel about the current wave of music especially hip-hop and i keep it real i said listen I like a few of those guys, but the majority of it, I think is trash. I said, I don't really, and it's not because it's trash for being trash. See, I have a, I have a valid reason. They always be like, oh, somebody's hate. I'm like, no. First of all, look at my resume. I don't have a reason to hate anybody. The bottom line is that I believe in variety. I'm from the era where everything had a place, where program directors didn't fall victim to whatever the hot new thing was. And no matter what the hot new thing was, all the other things that relegated to being diverse were still played on the radio like black radio and kiss fm and wbls in new york city they had the quiet storm where they play nothing but r&b slow jams they, they won't play during the day then then they would play and then at 12 midnight they would play house music up until like three o'clock in the, in the morning see what i mean that's diversity that's diversity and that's what it's always been about with me because i believe that everybody should have um an hour or two just to turn up and have fun. I said, I, I like a lot of this. I, like, I love Migos. I like a lot of people who do some of this stuff. But the thing is, is that I don't like the over-exaggeration of everybody coming out sounding the same. That's where I have a problem. That It's almost like, wow, you couldn't be you couldn't be different from that guy. Why does your record have to sound exactly like that? Because it, it gets to a point where I can't tell none of these niggas apart. So that's really more so my issue. But I still keep an ear. And, you know, if you notice, I have a lot of young fans as well. So my thing is just that I'm doing something right and I'm being myself. I'm not trying to do the stuff that they're probably into besides my music. They like my shit for what it is. And even if I did something like that on that level, it would be dope. Because they know I'm, I'm a real, like, like my, I, I rapped on my nephew's album and his friends were bugging. They was like, that's your uncle? Like, oh, what? Oh, wow. Like, he, huh? he really, I'm like, a real MC can rip anything. That's... Now, them little ABC rhyme schemes that most of your generation come up with, I'll be sitting there, I'm not, my nephew can write better raps than that, but that's me. That doesn't mean that, that, that all of them are wet. That's why I said, I said, I like some of them, but the majority of it, I don't like, and I made it very clear. So I don't even think it's that. I just think that a lot of the kids in this generation, they don't have a real understanding, plus they're not being taught. Because if you were being taught, you know, like I was taught. And when I say taught, not so much like in a school sort of setting, but just more so in the environment I grew up in where everything had a place. My family was my Juilliard for music, you know? So we listened to everything. You know, of course, our main things being funk, R&B, and blues, and gospel because of where our roots are. But, um, you know, my mother bought my first two rap albums, so she liked rap. And mind you, she wasn't, like, crazy about it, but she she dug it. So I was, I was fortunate to have a mother that dug rap. <laughs> and not to mention... My mother's the reason why I became a Prince fan because my mother went to the Dirty Montour. So there you go. It's like I, I was fortunate that I had a mother that was just that cool and hip. Everybody don't have that same kind of mother. So I'll always say to kids, especially the black kids, I said, you know, it's it's important that your parents show you what time it is early in the beginning. I tell a lot of black parents, I'm like, school your kids in the classics. They can like everything. I can tell my daughters all the time. I said, I said, listen, you don't have to buy a BB King record. That ain't the point. You don't got to buy a BB King record. 
but just know who he is. Know who he is and respect the lineage of where you come from, especially because that's Graham's, that's Graham's friend. So it's almost like I want you to understand why we have legends in this family. So I made sure that my, my kids are grown now. I made sure that my kids learned and knew what funk and all that other stuff was. Because I knew that the generation coming up, they're going to be into what they into. They like mu- They like certain kind of music. And that's the reason why I have such a great relationship with them too, because we could always get different perspectives and they like to hear my perspective because they know that dad ain't no old fuddy-duddy guy. Like, I'm like, I'm like no, I said, that, that joint is dope. I kind of like that song. And I'm able to bug out with them on that level. A lot of parents don't do that, especially if they're like a, a huge age gap between their age and their kid's age, you know? So it's almost like a thing where it's a weird scenario, you know what I mean? And we don't have enough of that. And that's because most of those parents were young. So they didn't really steep their kids and enrich them with the classics of R&B and funk and, and jazz and blues and gospel. But you can best believe, and I've seen this with my own eyes, when I do corporate gigs, you know, them Jewish people, they, listen to me, they're going to make sure that their kids, even if their kids don't ever buy an Aerosmith record ever in life. When I did Walk This Way, this one white kid knew all the words. He had to be about at least 14. See what I'm saying? He knew all the words. I'm like, see, obviously your parent, your, your parents raised you in the classics. So when I do rock classics, when I do pop stuff, they know what it is. I mean, what's one of the one of the most universal songs of all time is "I Will Survive," and that song is almost what 40, 50 years old. But all the young girls know that song. You see what I'm saying? Or the most universal song that every black and white person should know is "My Girl" by The Temptations. It's probably the most famous, probably the most famous guitar line. If you want, if you want to get specific, as soon as you hear that, it's it's like a, it's like a call to arms. That song is will be close to sixty years old at some point, and it still gets the same reaction. And that's because when you see people, when you see people of all colors singing that song, that tells you you had grandparents in the house, you know. Yeah. So it, it's so it, so it's really just that. I think it's, I just think it's more of like a lack of communication, the fact that a lot of them weren't raised properly and a lot of them, you know, they didn't have that environment. So a lot of times I can't even fault them if they don't know something. I, I ne- that's why I never get upset anymore. I'm just like, I'll, the first thing I always ask, I'll be like, how do you? And I do, and I do it with a smile. You see, see, George taught me something. This is the, one of the best things that George Clinton ever said and who better than him to say. He says, don't be the old guy in the room. He didn't tell me, but he was like saying in general, he said, he said, the reason why I got my grandkids on stage is because I'm, I'm into their trap stuff. I, I love what they're doing with that. And then you'd be surprised. You'll get more out of them if you show an interest into what they're into. And he said, as long as it's positive and it's cool, then I ain't got nothing to worry about. After a while, bitch, bitch don't kill my vibe. Sounds cool. So you see what I'm saying? So the thing, but, but see, but George has always been like that. George has always been about the youth. You know that. He's always been about the youth. That's what Funkadelic was. They were all teenagers. So I'm saying that to say that it's really about communication and understanding. That's why anytime I meet any young guy who's younger than me, no matter what genre of music they're doing, I'm listening and I'm paying attention. If they seek advice, I give it to them. If they're attaching to what I'm doing, they dig what I'm doing, that gives me a lot of leeway. That's why I say having a resume does help a lot because when they see who you like, you know, a lot of people, when they find out I work with Amy Winehouse, a lot of the females I work with, they, you know what I mean? Like they get... Like, oh my God! Because I, you, you, and I realize in that moment again, I'm like, man, she, that girl really was love, man. If only, I mean, she knew, but she didn't really, really know, you know. And that shows me right there. So whenever they find that out, 
that's a perfect opportunity for me to use my influence because now they really respect the fact that they're that they're being mentored by somebody who worked with one of their favorite artists. So now they're more inclined to hear what I'm saying to them if I'm talking to them about um, the music business or the artistry of music, you know? Exactly. That actually sparks up two questions, but you know, you made a good point. Like I put it this way. I'm trying to keep my ears open to everything, but some stuff, it just sounds like sometimes I've just bang my head against the wall. Some stuff yeah, I do absolutely. like, and, like and, there, and the thing about it, there's some ideas that kind of feel like I hear what they're trying to do, but I don't think they know the right people to pull it off. I around. agree. I totally agree with that. You know, like, okay, for example, little Uzi Vert, mm-hmm. he is a, has a strong Marilyn Manson influence in I, mm-hmm. the last time. I like some ideas he pulls off, but I kind of feel like he needs to hang around more people in that realm, you know, I'll put it that way. Cause he's in the, in the wrong vehicle, you know, Agreed. you know, like those stories about him. So he worked with Marilyn Manson soon. I'm like, I'm actually looking forward to that album. I'm really looking forward to that. You know, like I like Agreed. this darker era of rap. Cause it reminds me of stuff I grew up on. It reminds me of like a little bit of Esham, a little bit of DMX, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit, a little bit of insane poetry, stuff like that. So, I'm looking forward to that, but okay. All right. Two-parter question. So how'd you get, so how'd you get this slot for Amy, singing for Amy Winehouse? Say it again. How'd you get this, how'd you get the slot for singing, singing back for Amy Winehouse? Oh, okay. Well, um, shorter version. <laughs> um, basically courtesy of my boy, Al Street, who I played in corporate bands with, and we used to always um, just rock the house together and whatnot. And we spoke about one day working with each other. And we just keep tabs on each other. So um, it happened one night. Um, they, they had him and these other guys had a show. And the lead singer bailed out on them. So he called me at the last minute to fill in. So it was a band that he was a part of called Three. Little did I know, the guy who was playing sax in that band happened to be no other than the legendary Neil Sugarman, who, as you know, Mr. Daptone, Dap Kings, you know, the whole, that whole movement, which I was a fan of from the very beginning, because the late, great Sharon Jones grew up with my uncle in Fort Greene. So that's like family, basically. So, you know, and the thing, yeah, so, so I was already excited. I'm like, I said, that's Neil Sugarman, like, oh, shoot. So we just performing, we rocked the house, we killed it. I couldn't stay for the second second. I had to go rehearse my band. And I told him, I said, listen, guys, I love working with y'all. Here's my card. You know, if you ever need me for anything in projects, I, I, I love what you're doing at that tone records. I love the whole synergy of everything. And I, and I was just it. I was just hoping that they do that. And, you know, next thing you know, about probably five days later, I get a call from the management of the of the Dab Kings. And he said, hey, Lord, listen, man, we, we heard that you kick ass the other night like you just so you know them to thank you so much for doing that for a set but listen i want to throw something at you like we've been checking out your myspace page that's how far that goes back checking out your myspace page and and everything and we just really loving what you're doing and we got this artist that's getting ready to make her american tv debut by the name of amy winehouse have you ever heard of her and i'm like no and which i was very disappointed at myself because i'm usually up on all the new shit so i'm just like oh i didn't know who she was he's like okay well um, the other background singer's brother couldn't do it because he's a solo star um, doing a, a soap operas and whatnot. And basically, they was like, well, we definitely want you. He said, because we love the way you sing and we love the way you dance. So we definitely want you. So, of course, thank you. at this particular time in my career, I was at a place where 
you know, I re again, I'm already a resident PFUNK member, so I got that going on. So we're killing the game with that. I had some backup for Freddie Jackson and, you know, Shaka Khan. Worked with Jeffrey. You know, I was working with all these different people singing backup. And I'm just like, okay, I had a rule when it came to singing backup. It had to mean something to me, and I had to be a fan of the actual artist, even if they were new school. Because even, even if I didn't hear about you, if I hear your music, I have to be into it for me to even stand behind you. That's that. That's how serious I took my thing. And people would call that, oh, you think I said, no, it's not that. I'm just very picky about who I sing background with. Because you got to remember, whatever you sing background with, your name is attached to that forever. So I was just picky. That's all. It was. I was just being very picky about who I sang with. So, of course, I told him, I said, well, let me check my schedule and get back to you. Of course, that was a lie. I wasn't checking no schedule. I went right to the damn computer <laughs> to type up her name to find any performance that I could or whatever the case may be. And lo and behold, I came across this song called Fuck Me Pumps. It had this whole jazz hip-hop thing to it. Her vocals were incredible. And the song is not about what people may think it's about, which I love the most because I just love she was very sarcastic even in her writing. And the whole Ronnie Spector hairdo, and I was blown away. I found another song. At, before I could even get past that song, I called them right back and says, yes, I will take the job. I'm absolutely down. And the rest is um, music industry history. Like, we, we, we changed the game. And just that one tour sweep, you know, we really changed the game on background singing. And, you know, Amy brought the, even though the real music had always been there, but she definitely brought it back to the charts. I mean, this is, and, this, and this is in the midst of all the EDM stuff that was going on. Because at that time, Lady Gaga was who I love, by the way. I'm, I'm a diehard Lady Gaga fan. But Lady Gaga, she, remember, she wouldn't display that other side of her talent until like the second album. And then she started doing like, like her live performances gave you a glimpse of the musicianship that went into it. But when she first came out as Lady Gaga, it was just, um, outside the fans who already knew her from when she played The Bitter End, and she was using the piano and all that kind of stuff. But when Lady Gaga came out, she kind of exploded with the right situation. So her vein was more in the pop EDM sort of thing. You know what I mean? So it wasn't, we didn't get a chance to see the fullness of her musicianship. Whereas people like Adele and Amy were coming with this real raw approach to R&B soul music. But Amy had a whole nother thing together. I think that Adele was more broader in her scope. Like her thing was pop but definitely of an R&B perspective whereas Amy was more diverse than all of them because Amy had a lot of hip-hop connotation to her shit a lot of jazz blues precision to her stuff and it still had the overall phrasings of those styles of music so one part 60s um blended all these different flavors and then had a, such a exotic image to kind of fit it very alluring very you know had a certain mystique to it and we changed the game, man. David Letterman still being talked about. 2007 MTV Movie Awards still being talked about. So the rest is, is history, man. Like, I ended up becoming her opening act, um, which I'm, in for, I'm forever in debt to her because she had the number one album in the country. And the rules at Universal was whoever the opening act was had to be signed to the Universal Records music label. And her and her manager fought the company to have me become an opening app because after she heard my demo, which is a demo that would eventually become the Plantar Syndrome, <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm forever indebted to her, man. I often get 
emotional when I speak about her because I, I definitely miss her and I, I wish she was still here, man. All right. It's a really cool story, you know. All right. Here's the deal. The reason why I ask is because I feel you know the answer to this question. Because I've been kind of going back to a few friends of mine, you know, for years, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Years ago, there was a movie called Lesson Zero based off this novel. Yes. I love that movie. Oh okay. My God. So, you know the song You and Me by Danzig, right? Absolutely. I, I love Danzig. So, wow. Yeah. Okay. There's been this low-key argument. So, the song, okay, You and Me was actually meant for a female singer, but mm -hmm. something happened. So, Danzig ended up doing the lead vocals on there, right? But now, mm -hmm. it's supposed to be him. Everybody I talk to feels they can imagine Amy Winehouse doing that song. Since you work with her and probably had a better idea of her influences, do you think she would have would have pulled that off or had any, any interest in a song like that or just kind of like, eh, maybe not? Um, All three. <laughs> knowing, knowing how Amy mind works, it could have been all three. You know what I mean? Because Amy had a way of interpreting classic songs, as you heard her work with Tony Bennett and that whole situation. So... Um, and not only that, but she has a lot of covers that were recorded that's in the stash that they probably won't release till like next year. Because, you know, she didn't, I think that'll be, I, I think it's going to be the last of her recordings because there wasn't a whole lot that they can really um, gather up to, to have enough for all the, like Hidden Treasures were like the last of Mom that. So if you can get a chance to hear Amy doing some of, um, some of the best versions of, of certain cover songs. So I definitely felt, I mean, she could have just easily said no because she's just not into it, but also, if she was to do it, she would do it as only Amy could do it. She she would make it her own. I think I think a lot of people have that sort of ability. So Amy's right up there to me with people like um, Marvin Gaye, you know, who was always able to take certain songs and reinterpret them a whole nother way and give it a whole nother language. I mean, to this day, Paul McCartney says his favorite version of Yesterday is by Marvin. So there you go. And I agree, it actually is the best version because it was so interpreted way different than what anybody else had really did with it. So um, I think Amy would have took the same approach. All right. So what's it like working in the corporate gig circuit? What is that like? You know, um, it's fun. It's definitely lucrative. That's for sure. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, it just, you know, for singers and dancers and musicians, it's the best way or one of the best ways to strengthen your chops to prepare you for what you could be doing in the future when it comes to music, especially on the touring side, you know? So, um, you know, I've been doing it for almost probably over 20 years and I don't feel no ways tired. You know, I'm not, the, the thing with me is just that, you know, it provided a lofty platform and it actually helped propel a lot of my success as an independent artist, because, you know, you, you meet so many people doing these gigs and things like that. And then also, you know, when you have a company like mine, shout out to Element, when you have a company like mine that, that kind of gets behind your talent and, and lets you utilize all of your gifts, doors can open. Doors can open. So I, I, I love every minute of it. Like, I, I have absolutely no regrets. I've learned so much about the woman who I've been proud to work for, and she allowed me to be my own boss within the company. You know, Marianne Ben is incredible. Like, she, this woman basically... Um, believed in me when nobody else didn't. So it's like a thing as to where to go from point A to point D and then us becoming the number one agency in New York City for corporate gigs, you know, um, from what's being said, they said, I, they said I had a lot to do with it because of the standard that I hold in terms of me being multiverse. But I always say, I said, as much credit goes to talent, 
it takes a, somebody like y'all to believe in me. Because you could have all the talent in the world. I mean, of course, you can make things happen yourself. But at that particular stage, when I first went to corporate gig scene, I was making it happen, you know, in terms of just trying to just make sure. And it took these people to believe in what I was doing and bringing to the table in terms of performing. So I love it, man. I, I love it. Cool. So what's like a set list like that for a gig like that? Um, It varies. It could be, you know, some some clients want top 40. Some clients want strictly Motown. Some clients want Persian music. <laughs> some people want EDM, you know. And some people just want it all. Some people just want all of a mixture, but they want more of the one genre that they love the most. Because that's when you cater to the client. That's that's pretty much how it works. Like they, um, if it's a, if it's a wedding, a bar mitzvah, a private party, whatever they're into musically, that's what you have to do. So our sets are always varied. So I always tell singers, you know, that want to get into the corporate gig industry, um, your repertoire got to be super. Because if your repertoire is not super. You know, you're not going to get as many gigs or probably none because the more diverse you are, the better. And mind you, I've been preparing for that long before I knew what a corporate gig was because that's my world. You know, people couldn't understand how I could like um, Careless Whisper by Wham and then turn right around and listen to my ideas about Run DMC. So it's like it pays to be diverse. You have to that this is, you know, I've been doing that all my life. So this was right up my alley. I'm like, oh, I can do this. Hey, Lord, you know, Copacabana? Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. I don't like that. Changed my voice completely. And people were like, wow, Lord, you really just, you really sound like one of those guys. I'm like, I'm a Barry Manilow fan. It works in my favor. So, I mean, it's, it's fun for me. It's, it's like playing dress up. I, I get to throw on a suit and totally be suave. Because as you know, I am suave in general, but I'm more rugged, wild than suave. I'm, I'm more off the cusp than that. <laughs> So when I get to play dress up and put the Stacey Adams on and, and get into my Mars day mode and, and, and get grown and sexy, I love it. I personally love it. Okay, so guitar-wise and bass, what's your gear setup? Um, for the most part, you know, I, I've been I'm, – I'm a boss head when it comes to my pedals and stuff like that. So um, generally, you know, um, regular boss distortion um, – Flanger Boss, um, Blues Driver Boss, and, and of course my Vox Wah Wah pedal. So I use that sometimes as well. And um, recently I just got into um, the Boss GT1. So I've been experimenting with that a lot lately because I figured I keep all my pedals with me. But if I have, I never had, a, in all my years of, of touring, I never had an actual pedal board. I'm very raw with it. I just have my typical quarter-inch cable set up, you know, put it out there and then just go for, go for broke and that'd be it. Um, but I've been getting into, since the time down, as I said, you know, this whole COVID thing was just a chance to expand your territory, your horizon. So I said, you know what? Let me cop this. Let me let me see what this is about. A few of my friends have one. My, my guitar player had one and then a guy that we like so much named Pete he had one as well. So um, I've been using that. And here's the crazy part. Um, Amp-wise, I still use um, the, the, the the Fender Deluxe um, DeVille situation, but I've been getting into the Mustang lately because the Mustang has the preamp now with all the settings on it already. So I've been getting into that. And it's trying to make things even easier for when I have to go out on the road or, or go out on the stage or if I get that last minute call to do a gig. And the presets are incredible. I, I got sold on it because I was trying to, I threw out my old amp. Um, I threw out the old um, DeVille because it was busted. So I'm like, I'm going to give me a new DeVille. And I'm like, okay, well, 
I got to wait on that because it's a little bit too much more expensive. I'm not going to get that until like probably another month or so. I'm still going to get it. But I said, but I need I need to have an amp so I can just listen to myself. And I did my research. I saw this thing. I'm like, what, $180? I said, but it ain't even. And then I'm thinking it's going to be, I'm like, well, it can't be that small. It's actually really, really nice. It's nice, sizable. And I did my research. I went on YouTube, saw um, some of the guys were using it and what it entailed, and I was sold. So now I've been using that. I've been practicing with it. I love the way it sounds. So I'm still going to get my DeVille, but I kind of like this one too. So those are my two amps right now um, for that. And for bass, um, pretty much clean for the most part. I think, you know, every now and then I'll throw distortion on it to do the whole Larry Graham thing to kind of balance between both. But um, I'm so much in the pocket when it comes to bass in terms of the overall sound. So I just want to really make sure that, my bottom is sounding the way my bottom is supposed to. So, um, especially when I play either the Fender Precision or I, or I do the jazz. So, um, it's either that. For um, amp-wise, pretty much um, the the amp. I love the Ampeg um, amplifiers. They're very when I plug up because I I, really, I I don't I don't do bass gigs as much as I would like to. I've done quite a few of them, but not a whole whole lot. But in the studio, it's the same concept. And then of course, if I happen to be on stage, I've been lucky enough that. Most times when I jumped on bass, the the, the, the guys, the bass player who used the amp they let me get on, if, somebody, if I'm helping out somebody, they would have an Ampeg bass um, amplifier. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just found this weird fact out, actually, because I thought it was a joke, but I found it was actually true. Apparently, Genuine is actually a distant cousin of mine. You know? I Genuine? I shit you not. That's crazy. Well, then again, it would make sense, because y'all from the same area. Yeah, exactly. Wow. We are, so... So anyway, I remember you. I remember you did backup vocals for TGT actually. So what was that? Yes. Gig? So what was that gig like? Oh man, that was fun. That that for me that that was a that was another one of those milestone moments for me because I've been a fan of all three of those guys from the beginning of their careers. So and to, and to be honest with you, which I think you know, I mean, it's sad that it ended the way that it did, but um, that kind of power at that particular time that we needed in terms of music, in terms of R&B music, it would, it don't get no better than that. LS, LSG is the next best thing because that actually would start all that, you know, the first Sweat and Gill. So to have Tank, Tyrese, and Genuine, the, the three greatest guys of their era, or at least among the plethora of the greatest guys of their era, because there's a whole lot of people that we can sit here and name that contributed to 90s R&B and early 2000s R&B as well. Um, so, you know, the list goes on. Um, my best friend, Case, of course, um, Joe, Brian McKnight. And Brian McKnight is even before that, but I'm just saying more so those guys. But um, it was an honor for me, man, because I loved all three of those guys. So to be singing backup and I didn't have to rehearse. <laughs> I mean, we, we rehearsed in terms of just getting the sound together, but I didn't have to go over words or songs. Because I know all this shit. So it's like whatever they want to do. And mind you, the set list that we did for that show, it changed rap. They only they only did five songs. They only did five or six songs. It wasn't all like a full-on tour or anything like that or even a full show. They did two new songs and Tank decided to jump on Ray True's piano. And he did Please Don't Go, impromptu. I didn't know he played piano, actually. I had no idea. Tank is a what? Tank is an accomplished piano player. He's a beast. Uh, he, he, somebody tapping out chords like he plays for real for like <laughs> let me explain the era I'm from when there was like a black artist they had an instrument in their hand it usually wasn't plugged in so when there's certain guys that found out you're playing <laughs> it was like holy shit 
like they use them more for prop actually you know well so, i mean no because you're right because some of those guys do but no tank is the real deal and you know all three of those guys especially genuine genuine out of all three of those guys genuine is the most influential on me because genuine just had this thing about him and to me enough credit doesn't enough credit doesn't go to his voice because he had a range that sat in the timber it was still soulful and then he had falsetto that he barely even used on certain records but when he was using it would be very effective and and of course the dancing probably because you know tyrese and and tank are not dancers so that's why i said genuine had the most out of all three of those guys though i love all three of them genuine had the most influence all right some of the newer R&B stuff, I kind of feel like it's not so much R&B, it's what Phyllis Hyman warned us about. Like, huh. a lot of, the, like, a lot of, like, you know, a lot of the new R&B female singers, I'm like, they're not really singers, they're just chicks with the personality of an avocado or a potato, barely mm-hmm. whispering, and a bunch of guys that were too afraid, the guys that aren't really, a lot of the male R&B guys, I don't really think they were R&B singers, they were just rappers that are afraid to get shot at. You know, yeah. I'm trying to figure out what the fuck happened, you know? Well, there's some truth to that. I mean, Phyllis Hyman did definitely make a point, but you got to also remember that there are a lot of other real singers and real musicians and even real MCs that get lost in the shuffle because the way the system was built. So I learned that even with all the pressure of anybody who has money. Look at Tyrese. Tyrese ain't got nothing to complain about, really. But then again, he does. Because his passion has always been singing. He became a movie star by default. So when you're pushing a product that represents real R&B, because his Black Rose album was incredible. So it's almost like when you're pushing the product, you want to make sure that people are out representing. Because at the time when he came out with that statement in, in accordance to the, to the Black Rose Project, I felt them and it worked because I'm so glad that we all went out and represented and bought the album because at that point there was a critical state, but there was no understanding that the majors versus the independents and a lot of the independents that had a lot of the um the old school stars or even some of the um the last newer ones. It's it's all relative, man. So it's just more so about where is this particular thing. But you said that about Black Rock too, but the thing is that we don't even get acceptance on the regular rock stations outside of the, the normal guys. So it's almost like you either do or you don't. And a lot of people choose to make it work for them. And some people choose to stay within the system and still keep making excuses for the system. So that's what it boils down to. It all boils down about how you're getting it out. Like, what are you, how are you going about it, you know? Yeah, so how'd you get involved with New Kids on the Block? Um... I'm a diehard New Kids on the Block fan from, from day, day fucking one. And the thing for me was that um, I remember being at the Apollo Theater. Because remember, my mother won first place at the Apollo back in 86. And my uncle won 13 times. He won so much they had to retire him. So um, nice. us Brooklyn us Brooklynites, which includes my, my whole family, basically, we got to see a lot of the shows that weren't being filmed. Because you got to remember, at, around this time, the Apollo had just started filming shows, like 88, 89. So I'll never forget as long as I live, because you got to remember, at that particular time, I hadn't heard of them directly right away. So I had a chance to see them 
as their second album was being released, which was, of course, um, the classic Hanging Tough record. And you got to remember, when they did the Apollo show, the album hadn't shot up yet. Because remember, this, if you know the story, Hanging Tough was basically the make it or break it album. Because the first album they put out, which was dope as hell too, but the, it, didn't, it, didn't do the, it didn't do the numbers. It didn't get the same type of um, push and admiration. And this second album was basically like Columbia saying, okay, guys, if this record doesn't get some type of, you know, sales or push, you know, we, we're really going to have to drop y'all guys. So that's, it was like a do or die record. And I remember sitting in the audience and these five white boys from Boston came out and they killed shit. I, I blew my mind. I was, in the, I was in the fourth row, man. Blew my fucking mind. And the first thing I'm like, where have I seen this before? Oh, shit. When I went and bought the record, I saw a familiar name. Maurice Starr. New edition. This is the white new edition, basically. So it, it was crazy. It, my mind was already, because I was already digging them, like, like just on the, on the strip of, of them doing the right stuff and all that, like right there on the stage. So the very next day, you know, part of my allowance every week was that if, if I got good grades in school, my, my mother would take me to um to the Wiz, downtown Brooklyn. You know, remember the Wiz oh, back yeah. in the day? So. Oh, yeah. So basically, that's I bought the cassette and I got hooked. That was pretty much it for me. You know, I studied every all five members, and then the more I found out about their background, it made so much sense to me. The similarities between them and New Edition was crazy. So over the years, I mean, the, the shorten that story is just a long story about like how much I studied those guys because, you know, me being a singer, a rapper, and a dancer. Groups like the Force and D's, New Edition, and New Kids on the Block, they appealed to me. Because even though they're, they're slightly older than I am, the thing was that I saw kids close to my age or at least, you know, a little bit older doing everything that I was doing in Brooklyn. And as I always tell people, you know, though Michael Jackson and Prince and um, James Brown and Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Wonder are all of my primary first heroes, what do they all have in common? They're all adults. So seeing New Kids on the Block, New Edition, and for some Ds, you know, and, and kids of that caliber doing what I was doing, it made me pay attention more. So while the girls were screaming, I'm studying. While the guys are hating, I'm studying. You know, the dance moves, the harmonies, um, the personality, how each member played off of each other, how, um, how the roles... Got, fell in place, you know what I mean? So New Kids on the Block was just dope and they had real street cred because these wasn't, just, they weren't a manufactured group and then what people don't realize about New Kids on the Block is that they were an R&B hip-hop group, period. They had no intentions of becoming a pop group. They only became a pop group when a Florida radio station decided to play the very R&B Please Don't Go Girl on a pop radio station. That's an R&B song. There's nothing pop about Please Don't Go, Girl. Little Joey is getting his Michael Jackson on on that record. You understand what I'm saying? So all somebody did was say, let's play this on a pop radio station, and that's how new kids found their phenomenon, which, of course, was young white teenage girls. Of course, their music is for everybody. If you look at their videos, they, they, Joey was singing to a black girl. So they, their whole audience, before they even got signed for four years, was basically all black, if not mostly black. 
And you got to remember, they're from Dorchester. Those worlds are not far. Roxbury and Dorchester is right around the corner from each other. Those worlds are not that far apart. And as Donnie once said in the interview, he said that we have more in common with the kids at Roxbury because we had holes in their we had holes in our shoes like they did in theirs. So nobody can really nobody can really make fun of each other because we all come from the same shit. So basically, I love those guys from the from the very beginning. Of course, I had to go back to the first album and then I just studied everything they did. The same way I studied New Edition is the same way I studied New Kids on the Block. So every album. Every every swag vocal that Donnie did, every falsetto that Jordan had, Joy with the big voice, Danny with the bottom, and then Jonathan with the special sauce, man. Even though he don't always sing all the time, but when he does sing, he makes a presence. So I wanted to incorporate all of who those guys were when it came to me vocally, even when I'm just doing regular solo stuff. So I just wanted to incorporate the idea of being in the band. So on a professional level, um, to be honest, it just came from me it just came from me meeting, um, um, you know, being in the mix where, you know, in 2008, my dream and a lot of other blockhead dreams finally came true. Our boys got back together and it was explosive and I couldn't wait to go see the shows. So basically, you know, upon making my moves, you know, as a fan first and foremost, and, you know, with the intention of saying, I got to work, you know, I, I would love to work with these. If they stay together, I would love to work with them on an album or something. Because that Block album was crazy. The Block album, man, listen here. I listened to nothing but that album for like two months straight, bro. That's how crazy. It, it was just good to hear Donnie and Jordan and Joey's voice again. And then, you know, seeing Danny and John come back in the mix with their vocals and their presence. I, every song was dope. It's perfect R&B pop perfection. To me, it's a combination of all of their previous albums, but, but, but with more emphasis on Face the Music. Like that whole production style, that all the stuff that they were doing on that on that album and the Black album. So I knew I'm like, man, I would love to do some stuff for them because I already know. I always say the best producers and songwriters are fans of the artist. If you're a fan of the artist, it's gonna bring out the best in you. That's the way I look at it. And because I know these guys' history, and I'm a diehard New Kids on the Block fan, and a Blockhead for life. Who better than me than to write and produce and work with them on, on some level? You know what I mean? So it just made a lot of sense. So, of course, you know, um, shout out to my boy Jimmy Marsh because Jimmy and, and Donnie grew up together. That's family. That's that, that's Boston family forever. And um, Jimmy had put out an album under Donnie's label. So we were just all hanging out, man. We, I, just, I, I was in the gym because I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to meet Donnie at some point because it's been a lifelong dream of mine. I want to meet my hero. So it really goes back to me just being a diehard fan. You know, because God forbid, if, if we would have never worked together, I just wanted to meet my Dorchester idols, point blank, and let them know what they mean to me and how much I studied them. I still have the VHS tapes of, of, of all the performances that they did when they won different TV shows and different tours. I, I just showed Donnie the other night, and he was bugging out. He's like, wow, Lord, that's crazy. I'm like, yeah, man. So you already know how deep I am with this shit. So um, basically, do... um. A lot of my fans, you know, when a lot of them just comes like, oh, shoot, Law's a blockhead. So they, a lot of female fans, they, they couldn't believe it because, you know, I'm going to keep it real with you. Let's, let's be honest. Um, even though New Kids on the Block music is for everybody, for every gender, um, to be perfectly honest, New Kids, for the most part, it's a female thing because yeah, it was, it, you know. it's five guys on stage, five good looking guys, and girls like them. Girls are screaming. Same thing with New Edition. Yeah. So naturally, most guys were either just kind of doing the cool now, even though they like the music, but they, they're not trying to show emotion. They're trying to be cool about it. Or they just straight hating because it's not, th it's not them that the girls are screaming over. 
<laughs> or is their girlfriend screaming for him? Yeah. So you, you understand what I'm saying? So it's Absolutely. almost like a thing as to Well, I mean, look, the way I saw it was this. I mean, look, us guys, we had we had girl groups we could scream for. I damn sure screamed for TLC because I had the biggest crush on Left Eye. So for me, it's like, you know, it, it's a two-way street. So I, I never understood why dudes be hating this shit. I never understood that whole... That, that whole logic of reasoning. I never understood that part of it. But anyway, the whole idea is that if I would have never got into any personal space with Donnie, I just wanted to meet my idols, man. Those are my, those are my heroes because I wanted to let them know how much they mean to me, how much I studied every album and every performance and how I still have the videotapes on VHS from when I used to study them the same way I studied New Edition. So that that was pretty much how we led to that because over the, the over the years, you know, what turned out to be one two-on-one album, it turned out to them being um, permanently together again. Because, you know, sometimes people do, like, one reunion tour, they do one album, and that'd be it. And like, we ain't doing this shit no more. Yeah. But much to my approval and much to the fans that wanted this for so long, they're still together and they're staying together. So that led the open door to people to hear about me. And then he had heard about me through Jimmy, and then me and Donnie finally met at Jimmy's after party. That they were having, they were having an album release party after the show that they did at the Radio City Music Hall, and me and Donnie met, and we've been tied ever since. So basically, I had a chance to finally express to him, um, him and Danny actually, what what they meant to me, and then we just kept building, we kept talking, you know, and we just got familiar. And then you know, of course, um, most of the Blockhead fans who fell in love with me just on the, stri- the strength of the fact that they saw this Brooklyn hood ass Blockhead, but then also they got into my music. That makes so sense. it became like a double, you know, it became like things like, oh, I've been hearing about some stuff about this. And then Donnie would just pop up out of nowhere. Yo, Law, man, I'm loving what you're doing, man. I'm checking that out. And that meant the world to me, man. You oh, know, yeah. that meant the world to me. They, you know, like I said, anytime, any of them, to me, platinum records are great. Grammys are great. But when your idols approve what you're doing and they love what you're doing and they're supporting what you're doing, that's the that's big that's greater than any award that you'll ever get in life because you gotta remember so i studied them that's who i want to be like all the heroes i mentioned as well but but definitely new kids on the block and new edition so it just one thing led to another so um this year as you know COVID, we have been talking about it for years but of course you know donnie's schedule is crazy and mine is crazy too so we always said like it's gonna happen but god's timing is everything and i always told don i'm like look bro you already know whenever you're ready I'm, you put the put put the new kids on the block signal up, and I'm there pretty much. Not the bassinet, but the but the blockhead signal up. And it just so happens, um, you know, he was going on live talking to the fans. And I'm just checking them out. I'm just like, hey, what up, D? I'm seeing all the the fans that, that we love and shit like that. So he decides to add me into the chat. Oh shit! So I'm like, oh shit, whatever that. So we start talking, and you know, Donnie expressed everything that he, I mean, it's nothing that he didn't say to me before, but to say it in front of all the blockheads, you know, just to say, you know, you're my little bro, I love you. I love what you're doing. I love how you take care of our fans. You know, that whole bit, that meant the world to me. He's like, man, listen, listen, you know, just that, that type, again, you can't buy that. And Donnie's a real motherfucker, man. He, he's a real one. So it's almost like, you know, it ain't phony. He ain't just saying that shit because I'm there. And the one thing that, he, the one thing Donnie said to me that made my total night was when he said that out of all the things that we've been doing that we did already, when law approves it, when he says it's dope, I know that we're doing it right. That That's, cr- wow. You know, I mean, because you got to remember, they don't owe me shit, bro. They don't owe me nothing. Those are my heroes. Like I told you, those are my idols, man. To hear that from 
the guys who I studied the most in this in this music industry since I was eight or nine years old, that meant the world to me, man. And then we talking, I'm telling him about the mixtape I'm working on, and then he says, "Hey, I want to get in on that." And of course, the crowd the crowd went crazy, and then it went from him wanting to jump on the mixtape to him just saying, "Yo." I want you to come work with me and KG in the studio for this next project, man. So the rest is history, man. So it's been building for years, man. But like I said, friendship is more important. Like I said, it was inevitable that me and Donnie was going to work together because um, we both said it to each other. He kept his word. He's always been solid with me from day one, which I expect all my heroes to be, you know. But the thing is just that timing is everything, and it's always golden. But the friendship with my with my Dorchester Idol is way more important. You know what I mean? My friend, my friendship with him, my, our, our brotherly bond is way more important to me. You know what I mean? Because you got to remember, in this industry, anybody can talk a gang of shit. And people say things in this business all the time and don't follow through and don't keep their word. Donnie has always kept his word for me from the minute that we bonded, man. That That's that's my big brother. You see, when I call him big bro, I really mean it. Like, he's, he's definitely like him and Danny. Like, they're like big brothers to me, man. Because like I said before... Um, they don't owe me nothing, man. But the fact that um, they support and recognize the Planet Hope movement enough to want to bring me in on the project, and then just on the strength of the fact that them and New Edition, the Force MDs, you know, they're the reasons why I am who I am today. In addition to Stevie Wonder and Prince and the Jacksons and the Temptations and Jimi Hendrix, so it's almost like to have my idols co-sign me and enough to want to bring me in. It's just. It's a dream come true, man. And, and my uncle is smiling in heaven right now because he always told me, he's like, Lord, I can see you now, man. I, I know you're going to meet them and work with them one day. Same thing with New Edition. I mean, I haven't worked with New Edition, but the fact that I'm close to um to Biv and Ralph, you know, that alone by itself is, to me, it's the ultimate. So whenever Biv comes on my thing and says, Lord, I, I call, I'm going to start calling you Lightfoot, Lord. Said, That's his nickname for me. He calls me Lightfoot. <laughs> and he said, you said, your foot game is crazy. Your slot is mean, man. I'm like, I learned from the best, and I point right to him. Because that's where that comes from. Everybody knows that. And I've heard it so many times during the dancing part of it, so it's crazy because it's almost just like they'll be able to say, damn, Lord, you got that Bobby Brown new edition thing, but yet you got all these other layers with the with the, with the the heavy metal rock and roll shit, then you're doing the R&B stuff, then you got the hip-hop and funk, and you can sit down on a stool and sing some jazz. So that's the whole point. The whole point is is pretty much, um, you know, I, it's, I'm happy. Like, I'm very, very happy. I can't wait for us to work together. So you ever get into the Misfits? Yeah, absolutely. My favorite album was the Danzig era, right? So yeah, of, of course. Me, me and Danzig had a couple of great conversations. I don't know if you know that or not, but we, we've been talking a lot on um, the last couple of months. No, I had no idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's me actually... and Glenn been talking, bro. <laughs> That's pretty dope, actually. <laughs> yeah, man. He he was very impressed that I knew a lot. <laughs> he was like, "Wow, man, that's crazy." He's in he's in he's in L. A. now. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so it's like you know, to me, after Danzig left, it wasn't really the Misfits anymore. It was like Jerry Orleans, Jerry Orleans Misfits Bonanza, right? Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I agree. I so agree with that. There was like you know the other lineup where he had Michael Graves in there, right? And yeah. Wow, yeah. yeah, you heard about what happened yeah. with him. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so cool. I've always wondered, has there ever been an artist that you were a fan of? Well, I'm not saying you're a fan of, right? Well, in this case. You're a fan of? Well, I'm, you I'm, say, I'm still, that's really? what makes me That's what makes me different because I'm not on that extra cool shit. That's what, I think that's what makes me different from most artists because 
I'm an artist myself, but I'm still a a fan of um. I'm still a fan of the people who I love. Like I'm still a consumer. I always tell people that all the time. What makes me different from that is that I'm still a person that buys records. I'm still a person that I can't wait till that person's album comes out. All that extra cool shit because you're an artist. Well, he just like I'm like yeah he is. But guess what? I'm fanning out. Yes, I am. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so has there ever been an artist you stumbled across that you're a fan of, and then they did something so fucked up or egregious or disappointing? It's almost like, wow, uh, damn. I always uh, figuratively or in person? Both. Oh, okay. Um, let me see. What can I divulge? Who could I talk about? <laughs> um, I can always so, edit the names out too. No, no. I mean, it's cool. Look, I don't give a fuck. What are they gonna do to me? Good point. So. <laughs> something want to fight come on whatever <laughs> so um let me see i'm trying to think uh i honestly personally i don't really have a story like that i mean i got more stories about who we blew off the stage <laughs> more so than anything else huh that's always fun <laughs> Yeah, that that's I mean, and that's and, more, and it wasn't so much more about arrogance, just more so about shit that people did that I didn't like. But I haven't had any run in with any of the guys who I happen to be a fan of, and I turn around and be like, oh damn, fuck them. I would never. I mean, more so about certain things that were questionable. Like I always tell people, you know, um, you know, Billy Preston is without question a genius, excellent guy, but um, he he's a pedophile. Yeah. So and there's a special place in hell for pedophiles. I don't care who you are. So for me, it's like, uh, nah, you know, just that part of it. But who he is as a musician, in terms of what he did in the game and him being the fifth Beatle and playing with the Rolling Stones and things like that, you know, he's definitely one of our national treasures in terms of the um, the um, the solid part of the industry. But other than that, I didn't dig on that. And just certain things about you know people that would just run down on people that would be that so cause some people don't some people don't like certain way that celebrities talk when they when they get around certain people and i don't believe in that high post shit because you don't know who can have it be in but um i will say this and i'm not going to say the name there is okay now to think about it there is one member of a certain boy band and i'm not going to say who the boy band is there is one member that was acting kind of weird when i met him and i'm just going to leave it at that that's all Okay. No, it didn't make me stop liking them. It just made me like, okay, I, I see I'm not going to be speaking to you as much if I ever run into you again. So, uh, you know, everybody else is cool. So, <laughs> yeah, I got you. See, now I'm going to be like, up, like 3 o'clock at night trying to do research and find interviews and shit like that, trying to piece together. <laughs> no doubt. It's good. It makes it easier for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess to wrap it up. So, who are you feeling lately, genre-wise, genre be damn, but who's, who's really caught your ear lately, musically? Um... I am a diehard Dua Lipa fan. That girl is just dope, man. <laughs> she's a great songwriter. It's not about her being the best singer or anything. She 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 can sing though, but I'm just like she she doesn't have to be a belter for me to get into her. Like I, I'm really digging into um 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 what she's doing, you know, in terms of like the whole R and B, but it's, it has that house music sort of connotation to it, which I love the most. Nice. Um, who else am I getting into? Um. It's quite a few people. I have, you know, it's so crazy when you think about some of the other people who have come out in these in these genres and whatnot, and then you're wondering why, like, okay, I should have listened to them before. I'm like, I could have sworn I heard them before. Why didn't I hear this particular group before? And 
it becomes crazy. So um, let me see. Who else am I thinking about? Um, shit. Well, he's not necessarily new. I, I love Bryson Tiller. Okay. Um, who else? See how I have to think about these things concerning the plethora of music that comes out? Because most of the people who I still love that are out here making music, even from three years ago, it, it all depends on who who the artist is at that particular point. Um, as far as hip hop is concerned, mostly um, just a lot of underground guys. So there's um, you know, I, I love Joyner Lucas. He's dope. Um, who else? Shit. Um, it's hard to think off the top sometimes when it comes to new music. Which is why we talked about before, because it's like it's not. It's only but so many people that you can get into that has a certain sound that you'd be like, yo, I'm kind of digging what they're doing. So this is becoming a um a, a new thing. But um, I love Shawn Mendes. He's he's one I like. Shawn Mendes is one, of course. Um, um, Halsey is definitely one I like, and, and I love Billie Eilish too. I meant to say that I love Billie Eilish, absolutely. I think we, I think the industry was craving for something different, and she's one of the ones to kind of bring that to the table. And though he's not necessarily new, I always look forward to anything that Bruno Mars does. Cool, he gets it. A lot of a lot of people don't get it. Oh yeah, but he he definitely gets it. He understands the um the prefer that, and then even with other artists that don't get the attention I feel they deserve, they deserve like JoJo, JoJo, that girl been dope since she was fourteen, man. And you know she's been, and actually her better music is the last three or four albums that she's done. But they only got her pigeonholed into that that era of of the um of the white teenage girl pop thing. Even though JoJo to me only had pop sensibilities, but JoJo is an R and B singer. She is. Without, she just happens to be white. That's all. Like yeah. Tina Marie. She's another Tina Marie. So basically, her her shit was always R&B to me. She just became pop by default again. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, she just, her new album is incredible. And then um, Sarah Bareilles is still making dope stuff, you know. So that's all I can think of the top of my head at the moment. Like, those are people who I'm into outside the regular folks who I can always trust to to put out incredible music. Like, you know, like, like oh, the last Black Door albums were dope like just him yeah. not, not the root stuff but like the black door stuff yeah yeah mm -hmm. okay well uh great chatting with you you know and you know it's always great chatting with you seriously i really feel you're the missing link honestly because there are only a few guys that can ever really talk about that really digs new kids on a block and also say i was talking to danzig too with well, that, you know, well it's just it's just interesting man because again and you know keep in mind that's the whole thing what people don't realize about about Donnie. And, and I don't need to keep going back to him, but I, I got to let that be known because that's the whole, the funny thing about that whole notation of, um, of you know, when, I, when, when, pe when people saw Donnie and, and the D-Nice um, thing with Club Quarantine, they, they were bugging out. They, they couldn't believe that Donnie Warburg was in there. And they were saying that they, they were saying to Donnie, like, yeah, we got to invite Donnie to the barbecues. And I'm sitting there looking like, do you know how many black barbecues Donnie has been to already? <laughs> exactly. You really did. You really don't know Donnie Wahlberg. I'm like, if you, if you have to say that, then you really don't know Donnie's history the way the way that we do. Yeah. Me and the other, the other fans are laughing. I'm like, do you know where Donnie's from? Do you know the majority of Donnie's friends? 
mostly black, if nothing else. And it's almost, I'm laughing because I'm just sitting here like, y'all really don't know. Y'all just got this mirror image. But that's what people don't realize about Donnie Warburg and the rest of the kids on the block is that they grew up with all kinds of music, but they always loved R&B, hip-hop, and rock and roll. Matter of fact, Donnie's um, solo on the Hanging Tough album is Cover Girl. That's basically a rock song. Hmm. So Donnie has always been both sides of the fence. He loves Aerosmith the same way he loves Run DMC. Makes sense. And his favorite, Donnie's favorite rapper is Rakim. That's his favorite rapper. He had a public One night when we was on the live, me me and Donnie did the whole, it was so crazy because um, he started playing, um, um, you know, I got sold. And me and him was um, um, quoting the lines back and forth. I'm like, people don't even know. And I'm like, but I've been new this about them. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I'm talking about going back 30 years. I've been through that about them. So when people get so shot, like they're like, oh, wow. Like, because that's me and Donnie are one and the same. That's why we call each other brothers. Like, we're really one and the same because one minute it's rock and roll. The next minute it's R&B. The next minute it's hip hop. The next minute it's pop music. Like, we love all kinds of music. But our roots are R&B, funk, rock and hip hop. I remember in VH1 special, he was saying, he said, on my way to school, I would hear Led Zeppelin and Parliament Funkadelic. And then by the time I get to school, I'm hearing all the latest rap records. That sounds like me and my brothers. Same thing with me and my brothers. And then our family was our Juilliard for music. So we had all styles of music going around in our household. So um, that's the reason why you're able to talk about things like that with me from each genre to each genre, because my family was my Juilliard. And then I did all my studying on my own when my family wasn't around. So that's why me and Donnie have so much common ground and why I knew that at the minute that we ever crossed paths and with that we were going to work together, it was going to be dope. So, yeah, man, absolutely. So I appreciate you for even saying that because it's all about versatility. Music diversity is sexy. <sighs> well, uh, great channel with you. You know, honor to speak and everything. Yeah. Great Thank shooting you. the shit with you. Looking forward to the new to the new albums and EPs too. Yeah, man. So don't forget, you got the Mega Dope Maniac EP coming out on my birthday, October twenty third, and the Humanity One on One EP coming out in November. No official date for that yet, but it's definitely coming out in November. Psychotic Chameleon will be on its way um, sometime in January, probably late January than anything, than anything else. And two mixtapes, Red Catastrophe and Purple Champagne, will also be coming out in between these these particular um, EPs. Alright, cool. Alright, well, take it easy. Peace. Alright, thank you, man. Appreciate it. No problem, thank you. Bye. Great chat with Law. Who knew we knew Danzig? Check out both Planet 12 Law on Twitter and Instagram. That's at Planet 12 Law. That's P-L-A-N-E-T, the number 12, Law.